Today's podcast is brought to you by TeePublic. We're offering you a special discount on all of our t-shirts over at Black Girl Nerds. Go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts. Use the promo code BGNNerds30. That's B-G-N-E-R-D-S 30. When you use that at the checkout, you get your 30% discount. And that's only when you listen to this episode of the BGM podcast. So take advantage of it. The sale ends soon, though. It ends at midnight on February the 24th. So go to blackgirlnerds.com forward slash t-shirts and use the BGN code BGNERDS. That's BGN Nerds 3030. Hi, this is Kelly Sue DeConnick, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Stefan Kapisik. I'm playing Colossus in Deadpool movie, and I love Black Girl Nerds. Thank you for tuning in to episode 60 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie Brodnax. I am your host. This is filled with so much content. It blows my mind. You have a huge earworm ahead of you. Guests that include a Hollywood actress, a social media activist, a comic book creator, and an actor in a huge comic book movie that dropped this weekend. We have actress Rachel True, activist April Rain, comic book creator Jules Smith, and actor Stefan Kapasik. And in each interview, all of them bring a lot of great information and just great perspective to the table. In our first interview with Rachel True that's featured, I am with Ashley Blackwell of Graveyard Shift Sisters. We both interview her and talk about her work as an actress and also just so much information. It, it, it was one by far one of the most intriguing and fun interviews that I've ever done. Rachel was just so much fun. I felt like I could have just been in my pajamas and just hanging out and having girl talk with her. That's the kind of interview it was with Rachel. Our second interview was with April Rain that featured co-hosts Mel Perez and Grace Gibson. We all chatted with April about her famed Oscars So White hashtag that has gone viral internationally. Hashtags go viral all the time. April has done something so phenomenal with Oscars So White that she has actually caused systemic changes to happen within the Academy. 
where there are membership changes that are actually taking place. She is to be credited for a lot of the work that she has done with Oscar So White. So she talks to us about how the hashtag started, where she's going next with her work with Oscar So White, the fact that she's at the Toronto Black Film Festival at this time, having conversations with filmmakers all across the country. So it's a very insightful interview and we were honored to have her as a guest. And then we talk with Jewel Smith of Hafrocentric. And in the Hafrocentric interview, that is co-hosted by Joelle Monique. Hafrocentric is a comic book that follows the life of Naima and her friends. And Naima is a very quirky and eccentric woman that is creating a social media network called MyDiaspora.com, which is about anti-gentrification and she goes into a little bit more detail about what that means Um, but Jules is doing some pretty phenomenal work as a comic book creator and we talked to her about her perspectives as a woman of color in this industry and then finally Karan who is our newest podcaster with Black Girl Nerds she interviews Stefan Kapasik. Stefan played the role of Colossus and Deadpool is the huge movie that just came out this weekend, getting rave reviews, and he talked to us very briefly about his role as Colossus, and also she gets a little personal and asks some questions about him. We learn a little more about Stefan, and he has a lovely, lovely accent, by the way. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. There, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of perspectives again and I I just think that this is one of those podcasts where you're just going to walk away going wow I really didn't know that about this person and I learned so much so I hope you guys enjoy I, I hope you guys get a lot out of it and stay tuned for episode 60 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast coming at you Rachel True is a popular film actress best known for roles in The Craft, Half-Baked, and also TV roles such as UPN's Half and Half. In her spare time, Rachel does tarot card readings, and in her spare time travels all over the country at various conventions in the sci-fi and horror genres. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am so excited for this segment, you guys. If you are a fan of films like The Craft or TV shows like Half and Half, then you're going to be excited because we have actress Rachel True here on our show to talk about her career and just talk about all things that's related to the entertainment industry. And I have my co-host, the great, the wonderful Ashley from Graveyard Shift Sisters to join us. (laughs) Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you guys for having me. 
I, you know, I've been saying to these girls on Twitter forever. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of what you guys are doing. And I was lucky enough to meet one of you. So hopefully I'll meet the other one at some point. But thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. I will try my best not to fangirl too hard during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I will try not to fangirl you. How about that? <laughs> well, tell us briefly, how did you get started in the crazy business of Hollywood and what led you to acting? Well, first of all, I think if I'd known how weird and, and uh, what a weird career acting is, would I have gone through with it? I don't know. No, really, though, when you're starting out as an actor, young actor, lots of people are like, don't do it. It is so hard. You will never succeed. And I, you know, I'm glad I ignored that advice, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, goodness, they were right. It's a really challenging business. So how I got started in it was basically I had my stepmother who raised me. So she's basically my mother. You know, she was there for all the hard times. She was an actress in New York City when I was a kid. She started, she performed on Broadway, like, for example, in The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. She did The Cherry Orchard, I believe, with him as well. Wow. at the public theater. So I, when I was a little kid, was in the background, you know, it was in the audience of the the performances she would do. But also I sat in on the rehearsals. And so all I remember is like, be quiet, Rachel, be quiet, <laughs> being told to be quiet. But watching these people who I knew, and when I was young, my stepmother and I kind of had a contentious relationship, right? So here I am watching this woman I sometimes argue with transform into this completely other person. And I was just fascinated by that. So probably how it got started um, as far as acting. But the second part of that story that really solidified it for me was once we moved to upstate New York. We, I lived in New York City as a kid. We moved to upstate New York, totally all white area, except for like me and my stepmother. My father married two black women. So my stepmother is also black, which is awesome. And we moved up there. And, you know, it was very weird to go from a multicultural environment like the Lower East Side of New York City, where we had a huge Asian, Korean, Chinese population and mm -hmm. Jewish and black and just Spanish, of course, at Puerto Rican, everybody. It was an amazing melting pot as a child there. Also, this is before I think all the endowments to the arts had been cut. So in my New York City school, I had lessons in, you know, sort of calligraphy and and Asian painting and cello and by all these lovely things. So then I moved to upstate New York, which is like, I don't know. It's like in the 1950s, but, but like not the white 1950s that white people idealize. It's like the 1950s where nothing has happened and everybody, dirt, people living in dirt floors up there. So it was a real shock to me and being the only black person, which my brother left after like a year, he couldn't take it. I was the only black person in a kindergarten through 12th grade school. And that was really challenging. So I was like, you know what I'm going to do? My stepmother had just done summer stock. I'm going to start a theater company. That was not a musical. They were doing musicals up there, but no straight theater. So let's do theater. Let's do The Miracle Worker, because my stepmother had done that and in summer stock, and my brother had gotten to perform in it, and I didn't. So I was like, let's do this, and I can finally be one of the blind girls. You know, like I wasn't so like, I'm going to be Helen Keller. I understood that that would not work. They needed someone different than my type for that. I started this, got the theater company rolling, and then the other girls in the company were like, listen, so you're going to play the maid. And wow. I was like, oh, I know. And I was like, wait, I don't, well, I don't really want to play the maid. I want to be a blind girl. I'm a blind girl. That's what I am. So they were like, no, 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 you're the maid. 
And I left school that day. I was super sadsy. I went to my stepmother and just said, well, I guess I'm going to work as an actor. I'm going to have to write my own roles. Mm. So that's actually what I'm working on now is working on writing. And it's been a long time coming because I said that probably in like eighth grade. So that's kind of the backstory to how it started. But the original story is I pounded the pavement in New York. I got lucky. I got a commercial agent. I did a play. got a commercial agent from that. And this is something other actors should know. To get in with non-commercial agent, meaning somebody who submits you for TV shows, films, things like that, I actually did an internship at a agency office because they were like, you have no credits. We don't want you. And I said, well, what if I intern here? Then they eventually worked with me. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. But I, I hustled. I was also doing an internship at a theater at the same time. So I was like bartending and then doing these two free internships and I was exhausted. But that's like the hustle you one kind of has to have to get something up and going, I think. Right, right. Wow. That's amazing. I see that you're on Twitter constantly and why you're not verified, <laughs> I don't know. That's a crime. People are not verified, and then every real housewife is, so I don't quite understand that. I don't get that, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's a no rhyme or reason thing with the verification process of Twitter. I know. <laughs> but you're I, verified, aren't you? No, <laughs> no. No, you're not. You're not. I thought you were. You deserve to be, too. Oh, I want to say thank you for your participation with Ashley and I on the Friday Night Horror live tweet that we do once a month. You were so candid about your experiences working on the craft. And one thing that still sticks to me is your experience with your agent where uh, they told yeah. you they told you <laughs> you can't act like the other white girls on the set. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Well, first of all, the whole thing with the craft was kind of frustrating. And maybe I talked, talked, I talked about it. That's my real accent, I think, by the way. Like, if you strip me down when I'm really exhausted, I sound like I'm from Brooklyn, you know? But I had found out about the craft audition through a friend of mine, Jordan Loud, who was in Cabin Fever. She had just read for the, she was like, there's this movie you should read for, Rachel. And my agents at the time were like, yeah, yeah, you're too old. We can't get you in it. And I was like, no, 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 listen, I really think you should try to get me an appointment for it. For this, because, like, if anyone's going to play a little black witch in this town, it's me. So, <laughs> so then they were like, no. And I was like, okay, fine. And there had been a manager who wanted to work with me. So I said, listen, manager who wants to work with me, if you get me in on this, I'll work with you. So she did. I booked it. And then the manager, the, the agent and agents, not managers, are the one who do your deals. So after I booked the part, my manager, who my agent, excuse me, who refused to submit me for it, was like, listen, uh, they're offering basically, you know, scale. Let's take it. And I was like, how about we ask for more? <laughs> right. Because I'm one of the leads. And this was like, you know, one of the first leads um, I'd booked. I think I'd done a Chris Rock movie where I played his girlfriend. But anyway, so and he was kind of like, no, no, we're not going to ask for more. They refuse to ask for anything over asking, which, you know, is ridiculous. But that's a sign of the times. It was the 90s. They literally said my agent was like, listen. They have, they, they've told us, they take it or leave it. They have another black girl in line for this. And wow. so I hate that that's like women in general in Hollywood. Take it, take what you can. And listen, it was one of my first bigger roles. So whatever they paid and whatever, I was very excited to get it, no matter what. And I will say, though, when I found out, this was like years later, I found out that they offered some guy who was for Skeet's part, who turned it down, but they offered him twice as much as me. This white boy. Oh, wow. And he wants, he's nobody. You know what I mean? So it's stuff like that 
which people are like, oh, let it go. It was so long ago. I'm not holding on to it, but I'm keeping note of it because that is how the difference between, you know, how black actors are paid, dot, dot, dot. But anyway, so I book it. We do the contract. I take the deal. And then my agent says, so just so you know, you can't act like these other girls on set. And I said, what, what do you mean? He's like, you can't act like the white girls. And I was like, I have no idea what he means <laughs> because <laughs> – I don't, what, what does that mean? Right. Act like the white girls. I mean, to, like, I don't actually, know, I have no concept of, like what this means because I'm just me living my life. And I understand that there's differences culturally between us, but in terms of it, like we're all people, right? So what are they doing that I'm not doing? I just felt like it was an odd thing for him to say right off the bat because I'd always been very well behaved too. I was not someone who showed up late to set or who caused problems or who questioned lines, particularly once in a while. But so that was my agent was black, just for the record. So this is a black man. He was trying to protect, I think, his black client. And he had a point. His point was, which is still valid today, if they're going to fire anyone for being a troublemaker, it will be you. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like they're not, they're not probably not going to fire so and so if they show up late, but you because you're black and this is you know your the unimportant role I suppose in their mind they'll fire you. Wow. So it's stuff like that that we all carry around as people of color. You know, knowing it's just it's the same axiom as that we have to be twice as good. Correct. Yeah. And we always have to be the respectable ones and and all of that. That's, That's right. But it's like, you know, it wouldn't have occurred to me to be any different because, first of all, I was like, I'm in a movie. I'm going to show I'm going to show up half an hour early because I'm so excited to be in a movie. I'm certainly not going to show up late. Like, again, I don't think it's a white or black thing. I think there's difficult actors who are going to be a pain in the ass on set no matter exactly. who and what they yeah. are. So having it broken down to race is a little annoying. Although, you know, again, that was just a man trying to protect his client at that time. The other thing is lots of people talk to actors like we're, you know, idiot children because some of us are. So I'm not. I don't think <laughs> I am. But some of us are really childlike and, you know, immature. And I think he was just trying to give me, you know, a heads up on, on what would happen in this business. Other producers will say, what was Rachel like to work on set? What was so-and-so like to work? And I didn't realize that happened where directors called other directors to say, was she a pain in the ass? Was she fun to be on set? What? So I was just delighted to have a star wagon at that point, which is the trailer that actors get. It's called a star wagon. Nice. Yeah. So other than that, when I was working on it, I didn't feel... I didn't feel a division in terms of race or anything like that on that movie. And honestly, that that movie was originally for white girls. So the fact that I even mm. got in there, you know, for me, it was a big deal. And it was really great timing for me because as an actor, we absolutely should be able to play all different kinds of characters. Right. That said, I was really excited to have a character who had, like, let's say, my patois of voice and wasn't, because every other audition I went in on that time, it was very boys in the hood at that time. Mm. So everyone, everyone was like, okay, yeah, um, more street, you know, but wow. more harsh, more, and, Ugh. you know, the thing I would always get at casting sessions was more sassy, sassy. Mm -hmm. And then finally, at a certain point, I turned to someone and I said, oh, you mean black it up? And she looked at me like, don't be uppity. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a slippery slope. But that said, an actor should be able to play all different kinds of characters. Obviously, there are Juilliard trained black actors who are playing, you know, street thugs and vice versa. 
But I think at that point in my mind, it was sort of important to me. I was very, I just wanted people to know, especially white people to know and black people, that we come in all different shapes and flavors and sizes and we speak all different ways and we look all different ways and it doesn't make us any more or less anything. So I wanted to be able to show people, no, I, it's not just the Cosbys who speak. It's not just this mythical right. Cosby family that speaks right. in this voice, this, I don't know, middle class, lower middle, whatever I am, you know, like has, has this perspective on it. So I really like that I was able to do that. I was a little bummed that I didn't have parents. Everyone else has parents in the movie, if you notice. I shot a scene with my parents, but it was cut. And wow. I was like, yeah, I guess the black girl is the one who's not going to, you know what I mean? It's not going to have the lines. It's not going to have the parents. So that's just the, the way it goes. And I've always said my big joke, at least in that movie, I sort of had a, a storyline or an arc or something. Because in my career, I can't tell you how many times I've said to a white actress in peril, are you okay? Is everything okay? Are yeah. you okay? Are you? I mean, I've literally said that line so many times that in my mind, I'm like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Like, it's like, <laughs> all, like, how many different ways can I say that one line? Because whatever's going on does not revolve around me. It revolves around you. The white and character. You, and, yeah. And are you okay? Can I help? Can I be of service? So it's kind of nice when you get a role where you're actually the one who, who's being asked if you're okay. Right. Wow. <laughs> I was going to mention because that that role in the craft was just so I think for I think for women of color, especially us who were coming of age at that time, who were tweens or teens, it was so groundbreaking to kind of see you. I remember people in my high school like kind of talking about your role specifically in the craft because we're like, oh, my God, there's a black girl and she's awesome. And she's not, you know, because I was so I was really in that space of like, you know, I didn't I never fit that mold. And so to see someone like you and, and that that character was really like awesome. And and also because I love horror and science fiction, <laughs> and then to see that kind of genre and see you in a genre role was even more exciting. And it seemed like you had like a lot of those roles in the 90s. It was kind of like a balance of like you had those those genre projects and then like your comedies, you know, dramas, whatever. And I wanted to kind of ask you, are those particular kind of roles, are you kind of, did you always kind of like horror and science fiction? Or are you kind of a geek in that way? I do love, yeah, I'm a total geek, first of all. Like, when I moved, yeah. just to add, <laughs> no, self-proclaimed dork geek, whatever you want to call it. Like, when I was in New York City, even as a kid, parents had a huge, I used to call it the library, but it was actually just a bookcase. But in my mind, it was a library. And I would spend time at the public library all the time by myself as a kid. And I read a book a day. And the teachers didn't believe me and tested me on comprehension on it. We're like, okay, you are reading a book a day. So I just have always, you know, been someone who's lived in these fantasy worlds and horror. I didn't read as much horror. I did read sci-fi. I was a big Asimov fan when I was a kid. But I, as an actor, it's super fun because when I was coming up, you just didn't see too many of us in sci-fi stuff. And we were the first killed in the horror movies. <laughs> if, if we were in there, so, you know, I, and I love a good scare. So I love watching horror movies. My boyfriend now can't take them. So I have to watch them after he's gone to bed. But sci-fi, for me, it was so exciting. Don't you think when Whoopi Goldberg joined Star Trek? Just oh, yeah. yeah. Another black woman on a show in this sci-fi role because I'd always thought, like, it's the future. There should be so many of us. It should not be just white. Which is something great that Star Wars did by including lots of different, you know, ethnic groups in this latest movie. 
But I really hope that I get to play more of those. I did a few horror movies back in the day. But honestly, and most actors won't admit this, we're really drawn to the parts that hire us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've heard that before. I mean, that's really the truth, which isn't to say you take all of them. You don't. Back in the day, I would pass on certain things and da-da-da-da. They weren't quite something I felt like was right for me. But the truth is we're, you know, we're just, we're, pl- we're troubadours roaming around the planet trying to pick up work where we can. And hopefully it's interesting to us and then other people. But I did know there was something sort of neat about the craft when I read the script. I thought there's something about this that has my name on it. I'd been doing tarot cards back then too, but I was, you know, really amped it up when I was in the testing process because it took a couple months between when I first auditioned and when I booked it. So I was carrying around like rose quartz stones and magical items with me, (laughs) you know, like really manifesting it because it's not to say that those little items made anything happen. It's more just that your one is putting out positive energy towards something they want. Because let's face it, most of us are so wrapped up in what's not going right that what do we think about all the time? (laughs) No, really, like me too. I'm like, oh my God, this didn't work out. And oh God, I So constantly we're putting out a stream of like negative. We're thinking we're giving so much energy to what doesn't work out. We're not actually giving energy and life to what we would like to work out. Mm, Good point. I mean, not to segue, like I'm not trying to talk about tarot too much, but like in, in the end, one of the readings I do, there's a category for hopes and fears. And it's the same card. Often what we, we fear, we think about our fear so much, it's almost like we're hoping for it and vice versa. So that's why it's the same position because it could go either way. It's where your thoughts are generating from, what you're putting out there. And so that's a struggle for all of us. But, you know, me too. Like I really have to work to stay in a positive mindset instead of getting bogged down because I can be anxious. I'm an anxious person. So I, I really work at that, not to be as anxious. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good segue or a bad segue, but I was just thinking about, you know, because we had met it at Monster Mania in August, and that was really amazing. It was totally fun. (laughs) Yeah, you met my friend Ray, who I would, you would not know who I was, because I'm very, I'm so modest to a fault. And I wouldn't have said anything if she didn't, she wasn't there. Why not? Because it's just, it's a... I'm the same way. Yeah, I don't like it. Really? Then I'm super impressed you've created what you have, considering... (laughs) Yeah, I don't like to toot my own horn, but like I was just you thinking about your career because like I said, I had seen you like I remember seeing you in the craft when I was like twelve, thirteen years old. And so like When I was, was like a hundred and seven. You're welcome. <laughs> so I'm seeing you at this convention and I hear it from like a lot of like, you know, I'll hear I'll listen to interviews with other, you know, public figures, actors, celebrities, whomever. And I'm just, I'm always curious about like, what's like the best parts about like, have you, was that your first convention? And what's like the best parts about doing it? I was totally new to conventions this year. It was my first year ever doing them. And I think Texas Frightmare was my first one. And I might've met you at the second one. I did, before I did one, I thought this is so weird. I don't understand the concept. <laughs> no, really. I was like, I don't get it. I sit at a table <laughs> and people give me money. It's weird. But, no, no, it's weird. But it's not, I realize, because the people who come up are are such fans of the movies that they're, you know, they're coming up. They want, I forget people don't live in Hollywood. They're not seeing actors all the time and forward to tears of seeing so-and-so at the deli. They, you know, this is a time to connect with something that's super important to them. And a lot of them know the movies inside and out, every bit of dialogue and 
You know, it's like when people ask me questions like, what was your character thing? I don't know is my honest answer. Like, what was my character thinking when I decided to pull her hair out? Um, I was probably thinking about what craft service was serving for lunch, but my character, you know, I can try to put my head in it, but it's so long ago. And it's exciting to me that for people, it's still so present. But I will say the one moment that really struck me as an actor was I was, oh, I was working with Essence Atkins on an MTV movie. This is before we did Half and Half together, maybe in like, I don't know, 99 or 2000. And her and I were working on this empty movie called Love Story with Monica up in Canada. And we were both taking the train down. I was getting off in upstate New York where my parents live. She was going on to New York City. But anyway, so I get off the train in upstate New York where it's totally white and voila, and everybody looks at me weird. And this little girl comes up to me who's boarding the train. She's probably like eight. And she's black. And she said, you, you, you were in the craft. And it was just the first. I mean, I had other people come up and say stuff like that. But it was first time it struck me that, oh, oh, she's really young. And she sees this. And that's exciting to me because when I was her age, I don't remember seeing people who look like me very often, I should say, on television. And the other thing was that her family looked super fancy, too. So I thought, oh, this is interesting, too, because it's crossing classism lines, which is kind of great as well, you know? Wow. Yeah. I mean, and that goes to my next question about how much of an impact you've had on young black women with your role in the craft. Um, Honestly, I I think like zero percent. But then people come up and I'm (laughs) I'm very surprised when anyone has been impacted by anything I've ever done. That's the truth. You created a huge impact because like there's a subculture of black women that are into like the Afro goth scene and black goth girls everywhere look to movies like The Craft and your character. Yeah. And it means a lot seeing that image. And black women, we, you know, unfortunately, we just don't get a varied representation of ourselves in cinema, in television. So when we see these eccentricities in very small spaces every now and then, it's very refreshing. So has anyone ever come up to you and said, thank you for representing me on screen? No, they, you know what? People have. But honestly, I all I can say is like, that's so nice of you to say, but I can just pass that on to the people who paved the way for me. You know what I mean? Like without other actresses who, you know, broke through and worked really hard to keep their stuff going, let's say in the late 70s, 80s, you know, when I was coming up. Those women were so inspiring to me, as well as my stepmother, Verona Barnes True, to just let me know that you could you could do this if you wanted. But I couldn't have gotten my role in the craft if there weren't like who are some of the big girls? I mean, like for example, like even like Radon Chong, who we don't talk about much oh, lately, yeah. but she was oh, yeah. huge. That's she so true. She was huge in the eighties. I mean, she was in big movies and, and all kinds of things and you know, sort of without those girls and there's six million more that I'm just you know spacing their names right now but they came first in fact a girl I know on Twitter posted a picture of her aunt and you guys you guys are too young to remember but at some point in the 80s there was a spinoff from Facts of Life with a black girl who was married to MacGyver the actor who played MacGyver and they were a spinoff from Facts of Life Richard Dean Anderson that's right it was probably I'm pretty sure it was him it was probably only like one or two episodes got canceled right away blah 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 but I remember seeing this first of all seeing 2D and being like oh my god it's 2D I could be that on roller skates but then seeing this spin-off with her gorgeous aunt and I'm spacing her aunt's name but she was an actress who worked quite a bit very stunning girl woman 
But she was inspiring to me because I just hadn't seen anyone in a lead role on television who was, again, not living there were good times and those shows were on, which, you know, I definitely enjoyed. But I didn't have as much of a connection with because I was living a different life. And it wasn't like a fancy life, per se, just a different life. Wow, that is so profound. In addition to your dramatic roles that you've played, you've done a lot of comedies as well. And my favorite comedy that you've done is Half Baked. I love that film. (laughs) That's like the, you know what? And I mean this with love. It's like the dumbest movie ever, but it's so funny, right? No, no. I mean, I I would say that to those guys, but like, it's true. It's so silly and ridiculous, but it's so fun. Like the opening scene with the kids still freaks me out because they're so young looking. You know what I mean? The kids when they're they're in like a 7-Eleven and they're getting Abba Zabba. I'm yep. like, oh my god, they're babies! Pot, <laughs> and I listen. I love weed, but like, I was like, they're eleven. <laughs> should be smoking pot. Full disclaimer: so I, I love weed, but <laughs> no, it's true. Like, but that's when I know I'm a grown up because I remember when I was watching School of Rock. I was like, oh my god, but if I was their parent, I would be like, they're not in school and their education. And I was like, Rachel, it's a comedy. Let it go. <laughs> like, you know, you're a grown up when you worry about stuff like that. But yeah, no, Half Baked was super fun and. When I got that script, I was like, oh, this would be so fun. I just think it would be great. And I was very actually nervous auditioning because I'd heard, and I, listen, this is just a rumor. I don't know if it's true or not, but I had heard that they'd offered the part to a couple girls or, you know, or like Stacey Dash had been offered it, but she wouldn't. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'll say this. Like the one thing I have going for myself right now is that I'm not Stacey Dash and I'm I'm pretty, pretty happy about that. (laughs) I'm going to just stick with that one. And I'm sure she's a lovely girl and all of that. And she's entitled to her opinion, but we definitely disagree. But anyway, but she wouldn't go in and read. And I had had a couple movies. Listen, she's been working longer than me, too. But I had a couple movies out and I was like, I'll go in and read. I don't care. You know, some actors get to a point where they're like, no, I refuse to go in and read for this offer only. Now, I've had moments in my life where I've gotten offers for things and that's awesome. But you can't, as an actor, assume that that's just the way, because let's say I'd said offer only, I wouldn't have been in half-baked. That's the truth. They would have been like, yeah, no, no thanks. We want someone who's willing to come in and have a meet and greet. I had one audition, I think, without Dave, and then I went back maybe and read read again with Dave. And I probably booked it because I started touching his head. And like, I I just kept playing with his head, which is probably what a girlfriend would do, by the way. Like the other girls were intimidated and didn't touch him or whatever. And it probably helped that I'd been in the Chris Rock movie, to be honest, to, yeah. to, for booking that part because the director, Tamara, had done CB4. So oh, another great it, comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Tamara Davis is married to one of the Beastie Boys. And anyway, I met her on CB4 when I was super green. Had no I, I didn't know what a mark was. I didn't know what anything was. I had. I can't even believe I made it through that movie, to be honest. Like, Chris, they were so kind not to ask me and be like, let's get someone in who knows how to act and knows what they're doing. They, I will always appreciate Chris Rock and Nelson George for putting me on that project. But by the time Tamara hired me again, I'd worked a little more. It's a little more comfortable. And like I'd already done a movie with Guillermo Diaz and it was just super fun. I mean, what's not to love about a bunch of fun? Nowhere. I love that movie as well. Oh my God. You've seen Nowhere. I've seen Nowhere. I love that was the first movie I saw you in actually before the craft. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. I, Nowhere was a weird Sundance movie I did by the director Greg Araki, who yes. had previously done Totally Doom. Fucked Up and yeah. Doom Generation, Doom Generation which, yeah. 
which is where Rose McGowan kind of first broke out. And Nowhere was part of the teen trilogy he was doing. So we were somewhere, I think, the third part of a teen trilogy. And I was super, super, super stoked to get that movie. Also had to audition for that quite a few, a couple of times, which is fine. Like actors, don't be afraid of auditioning. Look at it as a way to show them what you can do rather than being intimidated. Like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I have an audition. How about look at it like, oh, gosh, I get to go in and act. So right. that's kind of how I try to approach that sort of stuff. But I love being in Nowhere because it was another weird alternative character that was, you know, just sort of outside the norm. And it was, to me, I just thought it was awesome that he was willing to put a, a person of color in a major role in a movie like that with all these other little up-and-comer teen white kids, you know. Right. Good for you, Greg, and thank you very much. Absolutely. I remember, I think, because I was working at a video store when I had saw Nowhere, and on the cover box, I think the tagline was, Fatal Attraction meets Clueless. And I was just like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> it's, no, it's seriously a super weird movie. And I, in fact, I think it was ahead of its time in a weird way. I saw a, we had a screening of it last year at UCLA where Greg had gone and, um, you know, presented his film and he had a film copy, which I, people don't realize the film used to be shot on something called film. And right. <laughs> you had a role and you had to carry this big roll of film around. And if that was destroyed and you didn't have a copy period, end of story. Yep. So, to, so to see his movie in, you know, projected in film, it was slightly ahead of its time. That's what I think when I watch it, because he really a lot of the things like Diablo Cody does, I think if you look at Greg's work, he's doing that kind of thing, creating his own language and, and dialogue and really tapping into the zeitgeist of what teenagers are all about. And that movie was supposed to be set slightly in the future, by the way, which I don't think was clear when you're watching it, but it's supposed to be like 20 years into sort of a post-apocalyptic future. Wow, nice. But I feel lucky as a as an actress, but then add in a person of color, a black girl. I feel super duper lucky to have been a part of that kind of 90s film thing, because that's when film was at its heyday. Now, TV is sort of what I say. TV is what independent film used to be. Oh, yes. You know, you absolutely what I'm saying. So I feel super lucky that I was able to be one of the actors, the last batch of actors to actually shoot things on actual film and have them released, you know, at Sundance and, and things like that. But I also think there's a lot of great benefits to it moving towards digital and there being more of a democracy with film and more people theoretically being able to get their projects out there now that the equipment and, you know, just being able to make a film is cheaper than it used to be. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. What was your question? Because I just babbled on and probably didn't no, answer it. <laughs> no, I, I just wanted to know about your experience that if you had fun on the production, which which you answered that question. So it, it looked like um, yeah, it was the, a fun film to be a part well, of. The, the other thing else, it's super fun because it was like having a bunch of brothers. I mean, seriously, it was just like having big brothers all around. We were shooting in Canada. As an actor, sometimes you don't want to go on location, but sometimes you do just so you're 100% of your focus is on that role. You're not worried about your dog or your whatever. You know, you're just right. you're on location working. And also one of the other girls in that movie it was Laura Silverman, who right. is Sarah Silverman's, Silverman's sister, who yep. is awesome. Remember, that was a great movie. Oh. <laughs> very, very, listen, very silly. But fun. That's a movie, though, that I would love. It'll never happen, but I would love for Dave to do like, the sequel to because ultimately like what yes. are those old stoners up to now that would be awesome and <laughs> exactly I, it's one of those sequels that would make sense to make into a sequel like it's not just for the sake of making extra money or whatever like 
you really, I feel like the story could pick up in a different time, in a different space. Well, also, so much has happened since then, too. I mean, then it was like, ooh, weed, oh. And now it's like, oh, you got your prescription card? You know, so it's just a completely right. different ball game and an evolution with pot, you know, all this time later. Because I remember doing an interview on, like, a news thing. They were trying, it was a wacky news show, which I didn't know. Like, I could have actually talked about pop. They were like, so, <laughs> pot weed huh and i was like oh yes no it is a gateway drug i mean i think i was just like i'm just gonna act like yeah no it's illegal but at the time i re- my friends were dying laughing they're like rachel you just smoked a joint and i was like no it's not legal so i don't want kids i was i was also nervous about kids you know i didn't want kids to think hey start smoking pot no 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 right. like adult comedy even though kids saw it like, the fact is, even though I am a supporter of marijuana and medical marijuana and all of that, you don't want to smoke it when you're young. You need your brain to develop. And you also, if, you, if you're if you needing to smoke pot and, and get out of your head, then you've got to question yourself at a young age, why? Why do I, why am I needing to, dis, you know, dissociate from what's happening? So that's my little anti-drug thing. But on the other side, I'm like, pot's awesome. So I was kind of so <laughs> groovy. <laughs> I guess, well, this is interesting because I guess it's in transition into, um, I just was looking around. Also, I have a thing about maintaining kind of a healthy eating kind of a lifestyle kind of a deal, kind of like, you know, Yay! doing everything in modesty. <laughs> yeah. And I saw your blog about it and I thought it was really cool. And I'm glad you were very open and candid about your experiences with transitioning from maybe some not so great habits to some better oh, habits. Oh, yeah. So I think the thing that a lot of people struggle with, especially people who, you know, are not rich or who are even just working class, you know, the craving, craving salt and sugar. What are some of the best alternatives that satisfy that craving, but also help maintain a discipline for developing a better diet for yourself? Well, I will say this. The reason like when people are like when people start, let's say, a diet and the doctor says cut out sugar or these bad things for a couple of weeks there's a benefit to doing that. You can go back on them after a few weeks, but the benefit to cutting them out for a few weeks is it helps drop the cravings. If you've been eating lots of foods, most of our processed foods are full of salt, sugar, and fat, which is a great book called Salt, Sugar, and Fat that I highly recommend people reading. Uh, it was really instrumental in helping me go, oh, okay, I see why I have some of these cravings. I see why I can't stop eating. You're right. I can't stop eating one chip. I can't stop it when they've been designed to make us overeat. It triggers into sort of our primal things of when salt, sugar, and fat were scarce, you know? So, of course, we're going to overeat them now that they're available and in abundance and crave them. But so things I do, like, for example, if I really want, like, I love baked goods. I love donuts. Mm-hmm. I just love me. So, I mean, that's <laughs> happiness to me, is it not? But so when I start to crave something like that, I found that having a hot chocolate is really helpful, but not like a pre-processed packaged hot chocolate. I buy like, you know, either fresh cacao or some kind of really good chocolate. doesn't have to be expensive. I just buy good. I mean one that's not full of processed weird ingredients. That's what I mean when I say good. I don't mean expensive. But I get some hot chocolate and then I cut out dairy a few years ago and that was really helpful for me feeling better in my body and having less inflammation. But so I have the hot chocolate with like, if you still drink milk, that's awesome. Have it, make it with milk. And it usually tempers down. By the time I finish the hot chocolate, I don't want a donut. I don't want to follow it up with a box of donuts. I'm done. I've had my sweet. And that's pretty much the only sugar sugar I'll have is in the hot chocolate. I also love, I think this helps curb my appetite and has, I'm going to knock on some wood right now because I haven't had a cold in years. 
Wow. I do lemon. And I'm someone who was not super, you know, on top of it or healthy before, by the way. So these are tricks I've learned and I'm, I hope they can help other people. I do lemon, have like six fresh lemons a day with water and a little bit of maple syrup, which is kind of similar to that maple syrup cleanse that people were doing with lemon, water, it's maple syrup and a little bit of cayenne. Sometimes I do the cayenne, most of the time I don't, but I, I use that as like, if I don't want water, you know, I don't drink sodas or anything like that. Yeah. So that is my drink, lemon with a little bit of maple. It keeps me going. And like I said, because the lemon is, you know, lemon is an acid, but once it gets in your body, it helps alkalize your system and alkalizing our system is what we want to do. And it helps clean your lymph system, the lemons. So I'm going to say that's probably why I haven't had a cold in a few years. That said, I'm not around children as much as other people. And no, but if you're around a kid, you're bound to get sick every two seconds. That's so, <laughs> no, it's it's totally true. And I'm that paranoid person that if you sneeze in the aisle in the grocery store, <laughs> I turn the other way. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I hold my breath. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, me too. I'm such a dork. What do we do? But I'm fine with it. We all have our eccentricities. And then one day, not that long ago, I was in the supermarket, and this guy, like, literally made a beeline for me and then sneezed on me. Oh, my God. It's like he headed towards me to dump his sneeze on me. And that really freaked me out. But then I got home and, like, did my lemon thing and didn't end up getting a cold. So, Listen, I what I think, and I've said this in my blog, is that everyone has a superfood out there. It's mine, me, one of one of mine is lemons. It may or may not be yours, but there is some kind of healthy vegetable food out there that your body is probably missing a nutrient in. And if you can figure out what it is and put it in there, your body will be healthier. And I'm someone who's always struggled with my weight up and down, you know? Like I think when I booked the craft, it was a lot smaller then just by the nature of being younger. But I lost like 10 pounds after I, I'm that girl who like gets the jobs like, ah, Jesus, I got to lose some weight. I've always like I hit puberty and everything exploded, <laughs> everything, boobs, ass, everything. Um, it's a flat ass, not a bubble butt. And that's okay, by the way. No, it is. I have like my dad's family's like Jewish. Why? It's fine. It's a why I'm fine with it. Because my whole thing in life is how can I learn to be the best me I can be. And not. And I don't think everyone should think like this, by the way. Like, everyone should do whatever they want. But for me, I was bound and determined to, like, I don't want to do plastic surgery or Botox or any of those things. I never even had a facial. So for me, I was like, how can I make the best out of what I've been given? Like, this nose that's on my face, I don't want to shave it off like people suggested when I first moved to town. Like, I was told, if you get a nose job, you would be beautiful instead of cute. It's like, I'll roll with cute. It's fine. Right. <laughs> because it's, but it's also what I was handed. And again, I understand that not everyone thinks like this. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to wrap my head around, be like, it's not that I'm judgmental about people who do it, but I just sometimes I'm like, but why would you change your beautiful note? That's how you were designed. It may be part of your life lesson is to learn to work with what you were given, you know? So, but that's like my little thing I have to work out. And maybe I'm just a little envious that other people get to do these treatments and look awesome, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'm going to do it naturally. Which isn't to say, like I said, I put out a tweet the other day, like I have worn clip-in hair for roles. Absolutely. It's super fun to switch it up and do things. But I must say, when I saw a thing on like, you know, kids getting weaves, I was, I I I saw your tweet about that. Yeah. 
I, I hope I phrased it in a way that wasn't, you know, too harsh for other people, because I get that if that's what you want to do, you should do that. But I do think had I had a weave as a child, I know this, I'll say it this way. When I would do half and half, and I definitely wore clip and hair on that show, I have plenty of pictures with just my hair. They're all over Twitter. But I also would bump it up because the styling kills it. The hot irons kill it when you're on TV. So we'll wear some clip-ins. All of us did. When I would go home and peel those lashes off and take clip out that hair, I always had a moment of going, oh, that's what I look like. (laughs) No, seriously. So here's my thing. Like, all that is great. but. I want to be okay with what I look like without right. all the thing. Like, like, and again, sometimes I look at the makeup tutorials because I will look, girls. And I go, where is everyone going? Where are all you YouTubers going in all this goddamn makeup? Like, where? <laughs> no, really? Like, I don't even show up at auditions with that much makeup on. So where is everyone going that that makeup doesn't smear off at some point and someone's like, oh, that's what you look like? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm a hippie. That's what I'll say. Like, I'm a dorky hippie. So I kind of like the idea of, like I said, trying to cure different things by by doing it healthily. And not that you asked, but I'm going to throw this out there. Like, part of what motivated me, and this is affecting a lot of women, not just African-American women, but all women. I had a horrible case of fibroids, which I had been told when I was younger, like, oh, you have a fibroid. And don't worry about it. That's what they told me when I was 18. So I didn't. Cut to like seven years ago, I literally can't walk. I'm overweight. I can't walk. I, I, I don't understand what's happening. I'm crying. Turns out the fibroids were wrapped around my hip socket and my spine. Whoa. So this, so this is what happens, black women who are out there who have fibroids. If you let them go, or if you have an extreme case, mine, the biggest one I had was 18 centimeters, which is really big, by the way. That's, it's six of them, nine inches, wrapped around everything, strangling out all the other organs. So, women, we do have to keep up on this. And also, I'm going to throw this out there, and <laughs> sorry to turn into my health thing, but fibroids are estrogen-driven, meaning you probably have a hormone imbalance, meaning you probably don't have enough other progesterone to balance out the estrogen, and that is what's making the fibroids grow. So one thing women out there what fibroids can do is to figure out how to cut down on estrogen-heavy foods and maybe look at natural alternatives to getting more progesterone in their system. <laughs> Sorry, wow. thank you for letting, and thank no, you for that's letting awesome. me go. This is good stuff. Is there yeah. any books out there that we can look at that well, has this information? Here's the crazy thing. You know what? No, there are really, I banged my head against the wall trying to figure this out. In fact, I'm glad we got to talk about it because I'm trying to, I was trying to figure out a blog post on this. Like, how do I talk about this? And this is an even better way because a lot of the times when women have these hormone imbalances, we go in and then they put women on antidepressants instead of checking their hormones. This is a common rampant thing that's going on. And I lost actually a year. Let's say, what happened to Rachel? Uh, I don't know because I don't know what happened because I wasn't supposed to. I didn't need antidepressants. I had a hormone imbalance. So I, I don't remember what happened that year I was on. Antidepressants. I just know that I kind of woke up one day and was like, I can bear, I'm still sick. And, uh, and then I got off those, got a hormone panel, then had a major surgery for the fibroids. So it's, I guess what I can say to women is be your own advocate, especially when it comes to women's issues. There's not that much study on them. There's a book by a doctor, I think it was around in the 70s called John Hooker. It's on Amazon called, you know, hormones and what the doctors won't tell you. And I can actually figure that out and send it to you. And it was kind of helpful because I wouldn't have known about the hormone imbalance and blah, blah, blah. And I understand that you guys are younger, 
But I was feeling really terrible at 30 and 28. So I didn't know that it was related to a condition I had. And I would love for other women to be able to stop that from happening to them and losing time from valuable time out of their life. That's excellent information. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yes. Yeah. And that, that, that's why, no, but that's why I tried. Like I don't update my blog as much as I should, but I, you, you guys are going to laugh, but I was trying to decide whether I was going to put up this post. It's like, you know, to encourage people to get their health on because I, when I was, you know, when I finished my surgery, I was super heavy. I'm a girl who gains weight really easily. So I was super Me heavy. Me too. Are you? I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I will gladly take that some of that weight. Please. Uh, I'm just going to say. <laughs> no, it's it's nuts how quickly I blow up. But so I was like, you know, I was fat sick and nearly dead after my surgery. And I fought really hard to get back to feeling good. And I'd like to just for other people to know, especially people who are like heading into their 30s and going, oh, I'm not in my 20s anymore. I'm starting to get older. You're only as old as you feel, and if you can keep your body healthy, you can feel young forever, and or at least for a really long time. I can't say forever, but I know that I feel really great and really awesome, and I'm stoked that I did the work I did, because when I looked in the mirror one day a couple years ago or four years ago, I went, oh my God, this is what I look like as a old, middle-aged, weird crone, and I was like, I don't, I'm not, mm -mm, no thank you, no thank you. So then I just, you know, worked to get back to where I wanted to be. And I look about how I thought I would look now at the age I'm at instead of much older than I could, should, would, because I wasn't taking care of my body. So I think, you know, it's like a little maintenance on your body and you can, you can look and feel great in your body for the rest of your life. That's awesome. Yeah. I guess you touched on it before with your tarot readings. And I loved what you said about how tarot doesn't tell your future. It shows you the here and now and the future options based on present choices. And I mentioned this because I feel like there's a misconception about the practice of it and what people do, because, mm -hmm. you know, I'll hear from some people in my family. Oh, that's witchcraft. Oh, that's the devil, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and I just wanted to ask your personal opinion because you are immersed in this. So what is the most important takeaway for anyone who is receiving a reading and would you consider your approach, you know, unique from other people who do readings? Well, sure. I mean, every every different tower reader is going to have a different approach and a different take and a different swing on, on how they interpret the cards. But for me, I think I was drawn to tarot because when you look at the deck, you don't even have to have studied or cracked a book about what do these cards mean? The whole point is to look at the imagery and what does it bring up for you? Because what it brings up for you is going to be different than what it brings up for you over there based on our upbringing and our, you know, it, these are archetypal images, the kind of things that Joseph Campbell would talk about, you know, in his mythology series. So they're just archetypes. And what does it resonate in you? Because that is your truth. And that is probably the thing that we need to work on. But again, with tarot, I stress it doesn't tell the future because I'm really firm on like, the future is malleable. You can change the direction of things. So I would never say, oh, I've just read your cards and you got this and this means this. What I say is this is a possibility mm -hmm. depending on the choices you make because everything from us doing this podcast, I made a choice to say, yeah, you know, mm -hmm. I could have made a choice to say no. So the future was not set and you, we have free will. So it's here. Some so glad you are... didn't do that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Of course it would. But I, I also love that they do peek into someone's subconscious because I do feel like we all have a connection. Like if I think about you or focus on someone long enough, I might pick up some of your energy. And 
for example, at one of the last readings I did for someone, which was a phone reading, so I'm not in person with them, which is strange, but, you know, I just kind of focused the energy, laid out the cards, and I got a lot of people cards that came up, you know, the knights and the kings and the queens and people cards. So I could tell it was about relationship, even though he hadn't said, we just did a general reading, but I could tell there was a, you know, another card, a signifier for romance was in there, probably like two or three of cups or something like that, which is emotions and love. But anyway, all these people cards came up. So I said to the person, listen, are you involved with several people and maybe some are women and some are men? (laughs) And he was like, oh, my God. How did you know? (laughs) And also I was like, are these people unavailable? Are they married? And he was like, how did you know that? And I don't, I don't, it's not like I was psychic. I just looked at the story that these cards laid out for me. And there's always a chance that they're going to be like, no. (laughs) And then you're like, "Uh uh-oh. But basically I do believe we are all empathetic to each other and there's a collective consciousness. So I do think that using the cards and hopefully your own focused energy will tap into that collective consciousness of the other person and maybe some of it comes out there. So what can do is help clarify what's going on for you rather than solve your problems. I think of it, I look at it as like a shrink in a box really for me. And I can't tell you how many times I've thrown a card reading and been like, oh, I don't like that. And then like, <laughs> and then I don't, I don't like how, what that said. And then thrown the cards again and again and gotten the exact same cards. And there's 78 cards in a deck and I'm usually only doing a 12 card reading or 14. So it's interesting that they're coming up because it's showing me that these themes are recurring and they're still here. You have not gotten past whatever this is. Wow. So I think that's, yeah, it's less mystical and magical. I mean, I do believe in a certain kind of, ma- I certainly believe in black girl magic, hashtag black girl magic, but I also, <laughs> yes. I, also I, I do, but I also believe that, like I said, when I worked in the craft, we worked with a pagan supervisor and what I learned, and I did a lot of study actually on it and read a lot of books, was it's really just earth energy. Like if you take out the Salem witch trials and all the like TV shows that you've looked at, it's simply just a focused prayer. To me, it's kind of no different than praying. And they're using earth, air, fire, water. What could be more basic, you know, than these tangible things that we have? And so it's really, they're just focusing their energy. Now, is that magic or is that prayer or is that hope? I don't know. But whatever it is, I think having something to strive towards and and a goal like that is is what makes it happen. Like, if I believe, if I really want something and I focus all my energy on it, is that magic? I don't know. Or is it just my intention? Or is it prayer? Or is it God? Who knows? I'm not trying to label it, you know? But I don't think it's anti-God. Or anything like, I can't tell you how many people, especially, well, black actresses who said, I would have never done that craft role because, you know, witchcraft. And I was like, good. I'm glad you didn't audition. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, kind of. Like, what else am I supposed to say? I get that. I don't, you know, I'm not a, I did not grow up going to church as much as some, some of my other peers. How about that? Like, that's what I can say. I respect it. I think religion is awesome. Some of it, some sides of it are awesome. But I actually thanked my stepmother for not forcing us to go to church. And she was like, that was your father. He didn't want you to go to church. I would have made you go to church. But I'm for me personally, I'm glad because now when I go to church, I can go with an appreciation for yeah, it rather exactly. than I was forced to or X, Y, and Z. 
And I hope that other people get to that place because I, I have noticed that I think black people are leaving, younger black people are leaving church. And I think there's a lovely place for it. But I hope that we get to redefine it with less harsh, you know, critiques of our lifestyle. I mean, I right. believe whatever you are, you should be able to be accepted by the God that you choose. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Wow. What a fully fleshed out segment. Like we've talked about the industry, science fiction, horror genre, <laughs> fandom. Yes. We've talked about healthy eating, spirituality. Oh, Sidebar to this is what I was trying to decide on my website. Like I have a before and an after from when I was super heavy to now. Actually, no, cyber super heavy to when I was super skinny. I got super skinny last year. So skinny that just sitting hurt. I was like, ow, my ass bone really <laughs> hurt. No, I'm not kidding. Like I was like, how do skinny bitches do, not bitches, how do skinny women do this? Because it's really uncomfortable. I felt really frail, to be honest. Like the wind blew me. I'm only 5'3". So the wind would blow me around. And then I started dating someone and without realizing it gained like 10 pounds back. And now I'm like, oh, my God, I would give anything to feel my ass bone again. So it's definitely a work in progress in terms of keeping, you know, the body exactly where I want. But I don't know if I have the balls or spot to put up my before and after picture with weight. <laughs> but I, I'm tempted to because I want people to know that you can do it. You know, it's yeah. it's not an impossible thing, even though it seems like it, it took me forever. And I cried a lot during the process, for the record. Mm. But so if you see a post of my me in underwear with a black thing on thing, you'll know I got up the spot to do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I will cover my eyes, though, because people like. Nobody cares about me until you put up a half-naked picture of yourself, you know, <laughs> media takeout. <laughs> but I am glad that you let me babble on about lots of different, you know, topics and things. I really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so well-rounded. I, I really appreciate you, you coming on the show. Tell us where we can find out more about any projects that you're working on, your website, and your social media shout-outs. Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at, at Rachel True. I'm on Instagram at True Rachel True, because apparently there's a lot of Rachel Trues in Australia, which who knew? Where else? My Instagram, Twitter, and then my blog, which I'm trying to update more and more and putting up a new video about, I'm going to put up a new one about gut bacteria, because I think these new gut bacteria studies are instrumental in helping people feel good in their body. But that's racheltrue.com or sometruethings.com. Those are the main places. And then as far as work, you'll see me popping up here and there. I've actually, because I had the health thing, I had to take some time off from work. So that should answer people's questions like, where'd you go? <laughs> I know, really, I get asked it all the time. Like, did you retire? And it's like, no, 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 I actually just had life. You know how life gets in the way when you're doing things. Yep. So now I'm just, you know, I'm just getting my role back on for work. And it's actually super exciting, to be honest. Like, I'm, you know, I hadn't been going out and auditioning and now I am. And so hopefully you'll see me in something really soon. Awesome. Thank Yay. you so, so much, Rachel, for coming on the show. Appreciate thank, it. Uh, thank you guys for asking me. I saw you had Cree on a while back, who I love, and she's amazing and awesome. And I just love that you are getting to the weird, quirky black girls out there. You know, yes. like we're, there's yeah. tons, there's a lot more of us than people think. <laughs> we're making our rounds. Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> April Rain, known as Rain of April on Twitter, is the creator of the famed hashtag OscarsSoWhite, 
She's also the managing editor of Broadway Black and editor-at-large at New Tribe Magazine. She was named Top 15 of Black Twitter. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Tonight, we have one of the most prolific guests in all of social media. You may have heard of her through several rounds of articles on the web, articles in film journals, on television shows, through a hashtag called Oscars So White. We have April Rain here on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you, April, so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And we have co-hosts Grace and Mel joining us as well. Thank you, ladies. Hey. Thank you. So my question for you, April, first, for anyone out there who doesn't quite know who you are, tell us who you are and and what do you do? Um, My name is April Rain, and I am the managing editor of BroadwayBlack.com. I'm also the editor-at-large of New Tribe Magazine, and I am the creator of the Oscar So White hashtag. And you probably get this question asked all the time, but how did the Oscars So White hashtag happen in the first place? You know, I really, through all of these interviews, I've wanted to make the story sound much more glamorous than it is. Um, I was literally in my family room uh, watching the Oscar nominations um, presented January of 2015. And I was just frustrated uh, and disappointed in the lack of diversity among the nominees, both in the actor and actress categories, but also those uh, filmmakers and film creatives that work behind the camera. Uh, And so I just vented on Twitter. You know, that's sort of my safe space. And so the very first tweet was Oscar so white they asked to touch my hair and it just sort of took off from there I mean it it started off um, very uh, comically and you know and then so it was you know Oscar so white we can't trust their potato salad or you know and then it it just sort of went from there Um, and but then it pivoted into a a much more serious conversation about the lack of diversity and inclusion in art and specifically in film. And, um, you know, I said to myself, you know, well, there's something here. Uh, Let's keep going and and see where it takes us. And and here we are a year later. Ah, yes. So to kind of follow up to that, I guess what were like the you kind of mentioned it the, as far as like how it came about, but were there any other like intentions or maybe even expectations with the hashtag? And did you anticipate the amount of press and magnitude that it has gained? Cause it's continuing to, to gain some magnitude. Right. Uh, there weren't any expectations initially because as I said, I mean, this was just, uh, it happened very organically. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I did, I didn't sit down with my creative team that doesn't exist, uh, and say, you know, <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know, let's really talk about this and, and make, you know, make worldwide news. That, that was definitely the, uh, not me. You know, I thought I, I wrote the hashtag and, you know, I think I finished getting dressed and I went on to work. Um, you know, but, wow. but then, 
it sort of, you know, it, it snowballed all on its own. So there, you know, uh, we, all of you are very active in social media. You never really know what's going to take off and what's going to become viral. Um, and unfortunately, the hashtag this year um, experienced a resurgence and, and, and is still relevant, meaning that there still aren't uh, uh, film creatives of color and those from marginalized communities that are being represented uh, at the Academy Awards this year. And so um, I, I had no expectations going in. Uh, and even with some of the changes that we've seen come from the Academy in the last couple of weeks, um, there is no way that I could have foreseen uh, that the, the systemic change that has occurred. Yeah. And that and that systemic change, that was incredibly profound. I was not expecting that to happen. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kudos to you for for making that happen. When I see articles that are written about the membership changes and the shift that has been happening and they're always alluding to Cheryl Boone Isaacs and members of the Academy, I don't think of them. I, I think of April Rain and I think of the Oscars so white uh, hashtag that went viral and the effort that you put behind that, because if it wasn't for that, none of this would be happening right now. Well, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't be having the conversations. Yeah, for sure. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, this is, I created the hashtag, but um, I definitely didn't do this on my own. And there's no way that that just one person um, could have, you know, I think that it was the conversations that emanated from the hashtag and the discussions and, and the sort of the, the, the roar as it increased um, worldwide. You know, the fact that I'm having these conversations um, in uh, with journalists from Germany and Ireland and more BBC outlets that I even knew existed, you know, and, and so now we're seeing um, not just in the States, but um, in Germany, they're talking about about diversity in film now um, nice. more than they did before. So in uh, uh, you know in Great Britain, um, Idris Elba recently had a talk um, with the MPs and mm -hmm. was speaking about the lack of diversity in um, British film and TV and how that was the reason why he came to the states. And thank you for lack of diversity <laughs> to bring us Idris Elba. Thank you. Um, right. Right. Yes. <laughs> so that worked out well for us. Um, you know, but but that is. It's it's and the fact that they've changed so much about the academy and that this is the first systemic change that they've had in the existence of the academy, you know, for over 80 years, it, it's it's mind blowing to me and and I'm just very humbled by all of the support that I've gotten and the positive response. So you know, there's more to do. Clearly, we're not mm -hmm. finished. Right. Um, you know, but this was a great first step. In addition to that, so do you see the lack of diversity tarnishing? the Oscars um, image at all, or does it even play a role considering race and ethnicity has a long history of being invisible from the beginning? I think it definitely tarnished. I mean, that's the whole point of, of the hashtag, um, that the lack of marginalized communities being represented in the Academy, both with respect to the nominees and Academy members, uh, is problematic and, and should not be a conversation that we are still having in 2016, mm -hmm. um, you know, but right. uh, with respect to the films themselves, um, the onus has to be placed on Hollywood and the studio executives because mm -hmm. the Academy can't nominate films that aren't made. Right. So we need to shift the conversation, at least in part, to those boardrooms where they're deciding, you know, what films to green light, 
who is going to star in a particular role and also who tells the story. So, you know, if we're looking at a movie like Straight Out of Compton, yes, it had a majority black cast and, you know, and it was speaking about issues, uh, you know, about hip hop and rap and, and race and, and all of that. Uh, and it was a fantastic film and grossed over $200 million world worldwide. But the only nomination it received was for screenwriting. And both of the screenwriters or excuse me, all of the screenwriters are white. Um, so, you know, why is that? You can't tell me that there aren't screenwriters out there of color who could have gleaned from their own personal experiences in, and put that on paper um, for it to be perhaps an even stronger film. And, and there are a myriad of examples of, of how that is. I mean, what happened Miss Simone? Fantastic documentary about, you know, our artist and activist Nina Simone, a black woman, but and was nominated. For best documentary feature, but if it wins, the person on stage receiving the Oscar will be a white director. Wow, yeah. that hurts. That's like a punch yeah. in the gut right there. And then yeah. Creed. I mean, Creed has a black screenwriter. Both yes. Aaron Covington and Ryan Coogler did the script for that. So it's just, it's painful. One thing I wanted to ask too, you know, talking about the systemic changes. Do you think that the role of film critics? is important because of the kind of coverage that takes place because these folks are the ones that are creating the Oscar buzz and the Oscar buzz is sort of facilitated by members of the Academy that's seeing these films. Do you, do you think that the amount of coverage that we are actually seeing plays a role in the films that are picked by the Academy? Absolutely. Um, not just in the films that are chosen, but in who wins the, who actually wins the awards. Um, you know, and, and we all operate from our own base, you know, our, our own frame of reference and, and our own knowledge. So if film critic, film critics are predominantly white males um, or predominantly white, then that's the experience that they know. And so perhaps they won't have as full of an experience for a movie like Beasts of No Nation or mm. Creed or Selma or, you know, or, or these movies that are told about marginalized communities than a person of color would, you know, and in the same way, a movie like uh, The Danish Girl with Eddie Redmayne, you know, I have a couple of issues with that particular movie because you know, Eddie is nominated for um, Best Actor playing a trans woman, um, mm. but the movie Tangerine about black trans women mm. was overlooked. Mm. That was such uh, a great movie, by the way. Uh, oh, yes, it was. Yes, absolutely. And so then the question is, is how it was shot. And you think that would yes. have gotten attention because yeah, of that? They shot the whole thing on an iPhone. Oh. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It was gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and those are the types of things because film critics, I mean, you sort of have to work your way up through the ranks. And so it may be that film critics don't appreciate the technology, the, you know, the beauty in, in creating something on an iPhone. Um, you know, but so back to Eddie Redmayne, then the question becomes, why couldn't a trans woman have played that role in right. a Danish girl? And so that's the issue. And I think that, with respect to film critics, not only is are they coming from from their personal frame of reference, but, you know, what we know about the Academy is that you are not required to view the performances before yes. you vote, mm, mm, mm. which 
I was going <laughs> to be part of my question. <laughs> you know, which, which just it, it, the first time I felt I was floored um, by that reality. But if that's the case, and and again, there are a couple of points there. If that's the case, you cannot say, um, which is a criticism that I hear often, that, well, the Oscars should be based on merit. Well, I absolutely agree with that. They should. It should be the best performance among the five or what have you. But if you're not watching the films, on what are you basing mm-hmm. your right. vote? right. And then, and then the and the answer to that may be the film critics to sort of come full circle back to your question because it is you know the support the 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 ads that we see in variety right mm-hmm. which you know and and how often mm-hmm. do you see ads for films representing marginalized communities in variety how much support do you see for that so if they if if the older white men again because we know the academy is over 90 percent white at least before the changes that cheryl boone isaacs is making over 90 percent white over 70 percent male and the average age is in the early 60s if we know all of that and we know that they are not required to see the film then in fact it could, the film critics review could be one of the things on which they're basing their decision as to who to vote for and that's the problem because they're not actually seeing the film so yes i think film critics are incredibly important and so that should be one facet of the discussion that we're having you know who gets to review the films who is considered the upper echelon of film critics and what is their perspective So we've been talking about um, the changes that have been happening to the Academy. And I think I keep coming back to two points. The one that you just made that they don't actually have to watch the film in order to vote for it. And I remember interviews talking to some of these older white members who said they just didn't want to watch Beast of No Nation Mm -hmm. or Straight Outta Compton. They just didn't want to watch it. So they didn't. So that's why they didn't vote for it. And I keep thinking of that. And I keep thinking of that tiny push the Academy made last summer to add in younger members and more people of color. And then the same thing happened again this year. So I'm wondering, do you think the changes that they're making now, do you think they're going to continue trying to make changes and trying to improve after award season? Or do you think they're going to just let it die again until next year? Well, the the information that we have from Academy Cheryl Boone Isaacs is, the, is that she's going to push for this so that they're going to increase the minority and female representation in the Academy itself over the next four years, you know, culminating in 2020. So I, you know, I'm hoping at least we see that in the next four years. Um, you know, the, the push that she made before in last late last year was adding 300 more members more diverse members to the academy. Now, 300 out of 6,000, I mean, you do the quick math, that's 5%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, um, and, and that's, you know, we're not going to look a gift horse in the mouth, but more needs to be done. You know, so saying that you're going to increase the number of women directors, for, an exa- for example, um, within the academy, well, we've had one. <laughs> you know, there's, there's one woman who has won the best director award ever in 80 years so mm-hmm. increasing it to two uh you know is it's is something but still not enough um you know and and those are the, the types of concerns that i continue to have um but i think you know i like to call it the obama effect you know I, I've never met Ms. Boone Isaacs. I'd like to think that she is wants to be as proactive as she can. But being the leader of a very old white organization uh, can be challenging. 
um, because perhaps she wants to make even broader initiatives, but mm-hmm. is getting pushback from her constituency. The same way that President Obama perhaps would like to make more sweeping changes, but has to deal with Congress. You know, that's the way, that's the metaphor that, that I kind of use there. Um, you know, but I, I am gratified to see that the most recent changes that they're making um, were approved unanimously by the Board of Governors. So I think that's important. Uh, I hope that the changes will continue. You know, I, I hope that the Academy members were, will sort of be ushered into the 20th century. Uh, right. You know, and will realize that, you know, that um, it's not so bad that, uh, you know, that older members who have not been active in the Academy have lost their vote. And I hope that it spurs them to become active again in the film community. It's because, you know, if you're 60 or or 70 years old and you haven't made a film, there's still a reason why you're a member of the Academy in the first place. You know, there's, there's only three ways that you can become an, an Academy member. And, you know, one of them is to be nominated or to actually win. So that means that you put out quality work at one point. So why not reinvigorate your career and get involved with some of these young people from marginalized communities and make a film again so that you can vote, uh, so that you can have a voice, and so that, you know, you're broadening your perspective with respect to, you know, a different frame of reference. So I'm hoping that they'll realize that the sky is not falling in 2019 when there are many more people um, of color and, and women involved in the academy. Okay. Um one of the things I found most frustrating about these conversations is all the people who think that it's just about winning an award. Mm-hmm. And we've been touching on some of the other reasons in this conversation so far, but can you expand a little more on why this is just the tip of the iceberg? Well, it's first of all, it is about receiving recognition from your peers. And I don't care whether you work in a fast food restaurant or you're the CEO of a, you know, Fortune 500 corporation. You want to uh, be recognized for your achievements and for better or worse. Um, the Academy is still considered the pinnacle of film. And we can have that debate as to whether it is or why it should be or what have you. But that's the way it's seen um, right now. For everyone. And that's worldwide. I mean, I, you know, I'm here at the Toronto Black Film Festival and I'm speaking to filmmakers from South Africa and, you know, and all over the world. And, and they say the same thing. The Oscars are it. Uh, so that's one issue. Secondly, there have been many instances that we see that winning the award is not just about the statue itself, but it's also about hopefully opening doors for that film creative um, for their next project. So perhaps, you know, you can charge a little bit more for your, you know, when you want to act or it's easier to get a conversation with that studio now that you've got Oscar nominated or Oscar winner uh, in front of your name. Um, you know, and, and hopefully it also leads to the opportunity for you to bring in more film creatives um, from marginalized communities. So if, if you now have a stronger voice than you did before 
you won the award, perhaps that means that you can bring someone else along on your next project. So I, I think it's it's more than just, you know, having something to put on your mantle. Um, you know, it, it can be it, it can be life changing for some. Now, there's also, um, you know, I acknowledge the fact that there's sort of the Oscars curse. Right. So, you know, if you want to talk about maybe Cuba Gooding Jr. or a Holly Berry, mm-hmm. they have not seen the, su- the success that I would have expected after their win, I don't think. Um, and, and we could talk about the reasons why and whether they're not their performance itself, but the character they played, whether that has something to do with it. You know, the fact that Holly played sort of a broken woman, you know, the fact that, um, you know, Cuba played this, you know, shucking and jiving sort of athlete, you know, and, you know, who was really just known more for his body than his actual being. I don't get that one. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I vaguely kind of see that, you know, that yeah, there are a lot of things I don't get. So yeah, that's right when, when he won that, I, I didn't understand. But I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just no, thought that, that didn't make sense to me when that happened. Is it, right. You know, and, and Lupita Nyong'o, I mean, who was amazing, but she played a slave. slave yeah. That's not to take anything away from her. Right. That's to take away from that's that's to critique the roles that are given to us far too often. And if you look at all of the women that have won, you know, uh, Whoopi Goldberg played this kooky, you know, psychic, you know, or, you know, or mm-hmm. what have you. It, they weren't for even Viola Davis. You know, she won mm-hmm. for playing, you know, a, a subservient uh, you know, help. She she is part of the help, obviously. You know, and so that's the concern that that there should be richer. But you know, someone like uh, Gugu who played in Bell was overlooked. You know, right. or there there are just so many roles that do speak to. Um, if we're talking about black women, our strength and our resilience and our beauty and our pain and our struggle um, that are overlooked. And it's and you know we're talking. Primarily because I'm on Black Girls Nerds, you know we're, we're talking <laughs> about Black women and men, but you know the Oscar So White hashtag again uh, encompasses all marginalized communities. So we can talk about you know Sir Ian McKellen recently came out and said, um, you know I have seen straight men win Oscars for playing gay men, and yet here I sit in the audience and have to put my acceptance speech back in my pocket twice now. Um, you know, and, and so there's a question there again about why, you know, who should play these roles and why the choices are made uh, the way they are. I recently had a discussion with BBC Radio about the Academy Awards diversity problem. And by the way, I saw the tweet from BBC to you asking you, had you heard about Oscars so white? And I just thought that was <laughs> hilarious. Um but but you know they they seemed very hard pressed in my interview on discussing the boycott and yeah. not really the systemic issues surrounding what is wrong with the academy and its diversity problem have you yeah. found this to be the case when you're having these conversations with the media and if not what has been your experience um, I find that the conversations are distinctly different when I'm dealing with international media as opposed to domestic. So internationally, um, they want to focus much more on the race issue, which I'm not trying to make it. You know, I, 
I, I think it needs to be about all marginalized communities, including, um, you know, the LBG, excuse me, the LBGTQ community, um, you know, women, indigenous people, people who are differently abled, in addition to all people of color. So everyone who isn't represented should be. That's my point. Mm-hmm. But they want to make it a race issue. And the the boycott is is the word boycott is not one that I used initially. Um, that's a word that the media used because it was easy um, mm. to, you know, to say what this was and to as sort of a rallying cry. And, and there's a reason why I didn't use it. And I think, you know, when, when Spike was asked about it, he walked it back as well because he knew, you know, that that's the, that was sort of a, a, a linchpin for the media. You know, I've never said boycott. I've said counter programming. You know, so if you're frustrated in the lack of representation of marginalized communities in film, then don't reward the Academy by watching their show on February 28th. You know, you know, I'm going to be out there in L.A. with my poster board, you know, saying down with Oscars or what have you, you know, or, or blocking, attempting to block people on the red carpet. And, you know, that's sort of what I see as a boycott. And, and that was not ever my goal or intention. Now, I know that Reverend Al Sharpton has been talking about something. I haven't heard anything about that recently. And mm. so I'm not sure if that's still a plan of his and you know that that's not that's not my show so if if that's what he's doing cool um but he he and i haven't spoken so um that's you know that's not where i am with it so i I, there's definitely a, a difference in um the questions that i'm asked when i'm dealing with international media um you know but i just sort of steer the conversation back to where it should rightly go what are your plans on Oscar night? I know you intend to support alternative, you know, counter programming as you state. What what can we expect to see from you? Well, um, <laughs> there, there there's a lot going on, and I can't share it just yet. But we we will be. I, I I can say that I'm going to be part of the this week in blackness sort of roundtable that we're having from seven to eight thirty p.m. on February twenty eighth. That's Sunday, Oscars night, um, Eastern time, seven to eight thirty Eastern time, and we're just going to be discussing um, these these same issues, Oscars and diversity and inclusion and and there may be some roasting of uh nominees is my thing um so you know and and elon james of course is is helming that Uh, so i'll be involved in that as well um there will be um live tweeting again as we did last year um you know and what we know is that the conversations emanating from oscar so white and uh, there was live tweeting. We live tweeted uh, Coming to America. Uh, and I chose that film very purposefully last year. Um, the Oscars experienced their lowest ratings in the past six years. And we'd like to think that we had something to do with that. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be on a much, much, much bigger scale than it was last year, um, and hopefully getting even more people involved both on and off social media. So I'll be announcing the specifics very soon. I mean, and I'm, I'm incredibly excited um, about what we've planned, and it's, it's bigger than I could have ever imagined. So there's your tease. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Kudos to the team over at TWIB and Elon James White. Look forward to, to seeing that. Any any final questions, Mel or Grace, before we wrap up? Nope. I was 
uh, I'll do it anyway. So Meryl Street. <laughs> <laughs> we were wondering whether or not we were going to ask this question. No, <laughs> they don't even have a question. You want to discuss Meryl? Sure, if you if you don't mind. So, I mean, just the question of her saying that we're all African or something. I it was that, and her saying that she's played people, a variety of people from different cultures, and that's why she's so qualified, I guess, to be there. Besides the we're all Africans. Oh God. Yeah, I to be honest, I haven't read the whole thing um, because I just. Uh, I've really been focused on the positive aspects that have resulted from this hashtag. And so when I see something um, like, uh, something from Meryl Street or Charlotte Rampling sort of um, went the wrong way and had to, you know, it had to moonwalk her comments back very quickly afterward. I, I think that when people can speak from a position of privilege, um, that unfortunately they don't realize how their well-intentioned words may be um, tone-deaf nonetheless. Um, you know, Meryl Streep is, is a phenomenal actress, obviously, and I and I wish that she would take the time to learn more about um the challenges that women of color and marginalized women mm -hmm. face you know in the industry you know one of the things that i i find so interesting about all of this is you know hollywood has this reputation for being you know this liberal bastion you know of of i'm not of entertainment you know you can get anything done in hollywood and yet you know, we see Matt Damon and the way that he treated Effie Brown on Project Greenlight, uh, you know, and then yeah. we get, you know, and then we get comments like this from Meryl Streep, who, you know, you would normally consider to be, you know, very proactive on, on various issues of, of rights, uh, you know, of people's human rights, um, you know, and, and so the fight continues, you know, sometimes the struggle is is from within. And so, uh, you know, I hope that this is a learning moment for her. It, you know, it was disappointing, um, but we'll just keep moving forward. You know, on the other hand, we have people like Mark Ruffalo, you know, who yes. is seems to be so incredibly woke on so many <laughs> levels. I love him so much. Not just the environment, but, but also on this issue as well. And, you know, the fact that he even considered not going to, you know, as a nominated actor, um, you know, was huge, I think, Absolutely. you know, and, 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 and that goes for everyone. I mean, you know, the, the comments that, that Jada made, um, Jada Pinkett Smith made initially, you know, some of them were a little troubling to me yeah. because, because I, this is not about validation or acceptance at all it's it's about recognition of quality work and you know and 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 so but i think overall her point was a good one that we need to support our own um you know and and continue to create our own spaces um while still and 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 the other issue i had was 
I don't think it has to be mutually exclusive. I don't think we have to say, okay, we're not going to hang with the Oscars anymore. We're just going to do, you know, the NAACP awards or the Alma awards or whatever, you know, category of awards you want to choose. I think that we can support our own and we need to do more of that. So I was happy to see, you know, Will and Jada on the red carpet for the NAACP image awards recently. Um, We can support our own and we need to do even more of that. But at the same time, we can critique the Oscars and the Academy uh, and Hollywood in general for the lack of representation of marginalized communities, Um, you know, because Will and Jada are in a wonderful place where they have their own production company. Right. So they could, if they chose, really focus on making movies, you know, that feature both in front of and behind the camera um, marginalized communities. They have that power. Tyler Perry has that power. Um, And, you know, we can talk about Tyler there's movies and what you know <laughs> but at he, least he's putting his money where his mouth is yeah. will and jada and he, you know see? yeah okay. you, you understand so yeah. you know so um it, you know it's, it's a double-edged sword right um you know and and you know and we can talk about spike too you know be, be and right. and i love him to death um you know but you know chirac was a little problematic um little. With, <laughs> I'm, I'm being <laughs> diplomatic Um, you know, and, but at the same time, you know, he's not afraid to use his voice to speak out on these issues. Um, you know, and, and, um, I think that he may have suffered over the years because of it. I mean, the fact that Spike Lee, who has what, 25, 30 years of quality work, um, mostly, you know, within the film industry, but still has to crowdsource a film? Yes. Yeah, that's crazy. Why is, I mean, it's Spike Lee. He should be able to open any door he wants to. But as he said, you know, we don't have seats on the table. I mean, it's, it goes back to do the right thing. Ain't no brothers up on the wall. You know, why Mm. is that in 2016? Um, But he has used his voice to speak out. And so that part of it, I really appreciate. And, you know, I think it's important that everyone speak out. This can't mm-hmm. just be a black issue. You know, right. everyone would benefit from having a more diverse cast and crew. Everyone, including white folks. So they need to be speaking out too um, about this issue because if you're working with us, you know, and if, you, if you're down, you know, or think that you are, then why aren't you speaking out? Because this affects you too. That's one of the things that I really do appreciate about what the work you've been doing, because it's very easy to be to get caught up in your own struggle. And I think that's mainly Meryl Streep's problem, because she has been working hard to get, you know, equal pay and equal opportunity for women unintentionally, I guess, white women. But she is working hard for that. And she is caught up in that struggle without seeing that there is a broader struggle that has many different people involved in it. And you've worked so hard to stress that, you know, it's not just about one group. It's about all of us. And we all need to work hard on making sure things are equal for all of us. Well, I appreciate that. And, and it's been difficult. And, you know, the, the backlash I get from people on Twitter who have, you know, like 47 followers. And they're like, oh, well, you know, BET Awards so black, you know, or NBA so black. And it's like, but... Um, you know, he, Google is your friend. Did they miss that Sam Smith won Best New Artist? Just last year. Right. And, how, and, how is it that black is Sam Smith won Best all, New Artist? Right. 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 And, you know, and Sam and Smith, just, who doesn't even know that racism is alive in London, 
won Best New Artist at the BET Awards. There you go. You know, and, <laughs> and, you know, Eminem won the very first year of the BET Awards. Justin Timberlake has been nominated eight or nine times for awards. So, you know, we've always, we, you know, Black folks have always welcomed people into our space, everyone into our space. The opposite hasn't always been true. So, you know, but that's a criticism that I get. Oh, you said Oscar so white. Why didn't you say whatever Oscar so straight or, you know, and it's like, again, this wasn't me saying I'm going to change the world. You know, <laughs> let's figure out the best way to do that. You know, this was me saying, you know what, damn it. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> sick of seeing this again. And I took to Twitter and invented my frustration, you know, and, and so it's important to me. And I've had to stress it a lot. It's important to me that this isn't just a race issue. You know, this is an issue uh, that affects the LBGTQ community. This is an issue that affects indigenous people and marginalized communities of all types. Um, you know, so, you know, you can switch white for something else if you like. Um, but, you know, the, the issue still stands. Well, April, I, I want to say thank you for the work that you've done and you're, you're very humble and you're very modest in crediting a lot of people for being responsible for the um, the push behind Oscar So White. But really, if it weren't for you just thinking of that hashtag and using it, um, this conversation would not be happening. These changes would not be happening. So we thank you and really appreciate you coming on our podcast to have this very important discussion before we go, can you let us know where we can find you on social media and any future projects that you're working on and where we can find you on the interwebs? Thank you for having me. So this has been a wonderful conversation, you know, being able to um, speak to women of color. It's it's um, it's just really refreshing. And, and so I appreciate you all having me on. Um, I am Rain of April everywhere. R-E-I-G-N of April. So that's my website, rainofapril.com on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, that I'm also Reign of April, and I am on Twitter most of all. Um, you know, as the managing editor of broadwayblack.com, you can find me uh, there discussing issues of diversity in theater because there there are definitely some challenges there as well. Um, you know, and, and so I, I we work to highlight the achievements of um, black uh, theater artists, both on and off the stage. Um, as the editor at large of New Tribe magazine, um, we want to focus on entertainment, the lifestyle, the news, the sports, the beauty aspects of young black millennials. And so that's NewTribeMagazine.com. And I have some things in the works and all of that will be on Twitter because if it's not on Twitter, it doesn't happen. That's, that's <laughs> the way my, my world rolls apparently. So, um, so new changes coming soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I really hope that we see more of you in not only just social media, but outside of the four corners of the digital world that we see you involved with the film industry, the entertainment industry, because you are making a huge impact. I mean, the fact that people internationally are talking about Oscar so white, the fact that it's plastered across magazines all over the place. Um, that that's a big deal. The fact that late night TV hosts are talking about it. Um, it, it, it means that you are making a huge impact. So I hope we see a lot more of you in the future. Thank you, Thank April. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was an honor to be on the program. 
Stefan Kapacic is a Croatian-Serbian actor who has been on TV shows such as 24, The Unit, and The Event. His latest film is the comic book movie Deadpool, where he plays the role of Colossus. His role as Colossus is his highest profile performance to date. Hi guys, this is Karan with Black Girl Nerds, the podcast, and I have a very special treat for us today. We know him in action and from the sci-fi world, and we've seen him in mega hits like 24 and The Unit and The Event, but now he's embarking on a new role, and I'm so stoked. He is a part of the Marvel Universe, and he is Colossus in the upcoming Deadpool. Stefan, how are you? I'm perfect. I'm feeling so good and so excited. Thank um, you for having me. And oh. as you know, I can say this, Colossus, just for you, and thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, such, this is so exciting for me because Colossus is, uh, I like to call him uh, the lover man of steel um, with sex appeal mm-hmm. because he's had a lot <laughs> of relationships. He's had a lot of, uh, a lot of traction in the Marvel universe. Now he's a, a recognized character, but he hasn't had a really strong hold in the entire universe. Is that going to be expanding in Deadpool? Uh, well, definitely. And Deadpool, he has his time, you know, his space and now we can like see the real Colossus. Unfortunately, in X-Men franchises, he didn't have, you know, he didn't have his time mm-hmm. because of the other characters. But here, thanks to Tim Miller and thanks to Deadpool, we have the authentic comic book Colossus, original one, you know, and he's wow. a, we, we did an amazing job. Wow. So will we see some of that action that he was getting in, in some of these relationships? Uh, he's been around quite a while. Will we see a little bit about uh, a little bit of history about him or will this be pretty much centered around the time of Deadpool? Well, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, Colossus will live right now because, you know, the re- reactions to to Colossus are amazing, especially from like creator of Deadpool, Rob Liefeld is, is totally amused. And fans are raving about him. So, you know, with the success of Deadpool, you know, uh, Colossus is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. So I just hope that we're going to, like, last and, you know, we're going to continue, you know, our, our, you know, team up for who knows how long. Well, I know you are a big fan of the Marvel Universe. Can you tell yeah. me how... Well, first of all, how does it feel to be called Colossus number one? Because that's crazy. <laughs> uh, that's unbelievable. That, I, that's, I cannot verbalize that. That 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 that's, that makes me that makes me most most happy. You know, the happiest man in the world, definitely. Wow. You know, it's 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 something that you know I was dreaming about from the moment when I had my first comic book. I was like six mm-hmm. year old boy. Mm-hmm. So you know, from that moment when I, you know, had a pile of X-Men, Wolverine, Punisher, all those comic books, and I was dreaming to become a superhero when I was a kid. And now, as an actor, I have a, you know, real-time chance, and I am a superhero. I'm a colossus. It's unbelievable. I'm still thinking that I'm dreaming. You are colossus. Now, how how tall are you? 6'4". Oh, yes. Okay, so you're really colossus. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) tell me a little bit about uh, how... 
what you like about him. Can you tell me what you like? He's a strong character. He's a strong guy. Uh, we well, see, we see some of his heart in the comics, and but we and we see his obvious strength. But what do you like about him? The thing that I like about Colossus is his soul. He's a toad. Um, he is like old-fashioned superhero, the real superhero, you know, the real idealist, mm -hmm. a gentleman, uh, some sort of like Marvel Universe Superman, mm -hmm. you know. Well, he is a man of steel, though. So, you know, he he he's, well, the real superhero. And the way he is like, you know, he's not swearing, he doesn't do bad things. Mm -hmm. He's a real-time idealist. He's like a perfect man. That's the thing that I love most. You know, he doesn't make any mistakes about anything, except he's so good. He's a really good person. Mm -hmm. He's great. He's a perfect man, wow. as a matter of fact. That's going to be so good to see. So I've heard that you've had to go through quite a bit of training for this role. Can you tell me a little bit about what your regimen was like? Uh, you mean uh, when, from the audition process till now, or what? Well, the the physical what? process of preparing for the role. Well, I had a big help, a great help from Tim Miller, who is a really big comic book fan, and he knew what he wanted. So mm -hmm. I didn't have any kind of a pressure, you know. I'm really into comic books and into X-Men universe, so I knew a lot about Colossus, but I did like big research Plus, see what can I like take and, and you know yeah, give to, to to make me make me a Colossus. But generally, I was like you know uh, I didn't have any pressure. I didn't have any any, any limits to create that. I, we were like experimenting about you know with his voice and you know what should we do? Should we like go with him softer or harder? You know, so it was it was really a beautiful process. And in the end, we we made something that is really beautiful. We gave fans and we gave gave the real Colossus to the world. And I'm so proud and honored to be Colossus. That's fantastic. So uh, it's my understanding you speak how many languages, eight or nine? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I speak like, if you, if you go, I speak English, Russian, German fluent. Mm -hmm. And I speak those actually the Slavic languages, which are like my region languages. Mm -hmm. They're like not, some of them are similar, like two or three, but the other are different. But you know, you're raising it that, that in ex Yugoslavia, you have to know all of those languages. So, as a matter of fact, I speak like nine languages. That's amazing. Do you consider yourself a nerd? Yes, and I'm <laughs> proud of it. So and am I. I'm so proud. Yeah. <laughs> We're definitely not monoliths. Um, I love it. So, exactly. what, what, what do you think? Um, what quality about you helped you connect to Colossus? Is there any part of him that you see in yourself? Well, uh, trying to, you know, <clears throat> be a perfect man and, you know, trying to help friends, you know, get them to the right side of the things that I find, like, similar with Colossus, mm -hmm. you know, and, like, you know, uh, being idealistic, it's rare nowadays, you know, to have some ideals. Like he's got, and I'm, I'm still having it. And on the other side, Colossus is a big child inside. Mm -hmm. So am I. You know, he's some sort of like even like a Peter Pan. He doesn't have any kind of like bad influence in him. So th th those are the things that I like really respect. And he has that kind of artistic soul, which is beautiful to have mm -hmm. nowadays. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that I can like recognize in myself. So I'm going to give you a quick five. Uh, the first question is, what's the last thing you read? 
uh, last thing that I read, like by the book or yes. the comic book. The book. But the blade, blade itself. Wow. Joe Abercrombie. Okay, okay. And what was the last thing you ate? Pizza. What kind of pizza? Margarita. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a slide sleeper or a back sleeper? Uh, back sleeper. Ah, ah. And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. What is your favorite sport? Uh, basketball. Basketball. You got a favorite team? Uh, New York Knicks. I heard that. And what yep. is your favorite season of the year? Winter. Winter. Why winter? I was born on 1st of December, so oh. I'm like winter child. Well, happy, happy, very belated birthday to you. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for your time today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am so looking forward to Deadpool and Colossus in a whole new light. I really enjoyed you today. Thank you so much for joining Black thank Girl you Nerds. So, it's been a pleasure to me. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Enjoy your day. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Juliana Jewell-Smith is a cultural worker, educator, writer, and organizer. She earned her BA in sociology from UC Riverside and her MA in ethnic studies at UC San Diego. She is the creator of the book Afrocentric. She used it as a way to challenge college students and readers alike about the presumptions around race, class, gender, and sexuality through character dialogue. Welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. This segment we have on Jules Smith. Jules is a comic book creator of a comic called Hafrocentric. And if you have not heard of Hafrocentric, then this show will enlighten you. We'll go over her career, the work that she's done with this book, as well as the story. And I'm joined with Joelle Monique on this interview. Thank you so much, Joelle, for being on the segment. (laughs) Great. So, Jules, thanks for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate everything that you are doing in the podcast and Black Girl Nerd world. So, (laughs) thank you. Absolutely. I am so pleased to have you on. I, I want our listeners who are not familiar with who you are and the work that you do, tell us who you are and and what kind of work that you do. Well, my name is Jules Smith, as you said before, and I'm the writer and creator of Hafrocentric, the comic. I'm also an educator, an organizer, a cultural worker, many other things, but this is another one of my hats that I hold. And I want to learn more about the the comic Hafrocentric, as we talked about before, I want to learn specifically about the character development, because these are some very rich characters that you have in the story that are just incredibly unique, and they provide a lot of substantive context to this particular story arc. Are these characters based on people that you know, or you just kind of came up with them on the top of your head? Yeah, great question. So the the two main characters, Naima Pepper and Miles Pepper, I loosely based on myself and my brother. And 
the other characters are, are pretty much amalgamations of people that I've known throughout the years. So there's a lot of different, you know, when you read it, there's a lot of different viewpoints. And that's one of the things that I tried to do with the characters is really create a diverse range of, you know, of, of blackness, really, but also even political thought. That's cool. Can you talk about your process in creating Afrocentric? Did you work on it as you had time or did you set up a time to work on your own? Do you try to do a number, a set number of pages a day or do you get done what you can? So, yeah, I, ha- I have a regular job. So this is something that I that I do in addition to the other work that I do. So usually what happens is I I have a general idea of where I want to go with the comic and I have a an idea idea where I want the beginning and end to go. And then I kind of piece it together over time. I don't have such a set schedule. It's more when I get inspired, that's when I start writing. That's great. I know we have so many listeners who want to be creators. And so hearing, you know, especially that you have a daytime job and that, you know, you do this when you can is really important. What kind of tools do you use to create your comic, especially inking and doing art? Do you strictly inks? Are you more into markers? Well, that's the thing. So I wrote and created it, but it's a three-person team. So I have an illustrator. His name is Ron Nelson. He does the inking and the penciling. And then I have a colorist and letterist. His name is Mike Hampton. So it's a three-person team, and I really could not do this book without them. They are a huge, significant part of, you know, the building of the Afrocentric world. Teamwork is so important. And I know, especially in the comics world, then it's so awesome that you shout out the people that you work with because there's been a lot of, you know, kind of controversy is letters and colors don't always get the, you know, kind of appreciation that they deserve. So that's really awesome. I know you talk about a lot of your heroes in the comic, but who kind of inspires your writing style? You know, to be real, I was heavily, heavily inspired by the Boondocks. Uh Nice. Yeah. It was really my, my serious introduction into comics, to be real. I, I didn't grow up reading a ton of comics. So when I saw Aaron Magruder's comic, it let me know that comics could be outside of the realm of like just the fantastical. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciated what he did. And I wanted to kind of add to that because I felt like a lot of the women characters that I, I was seeing were uh, just kind of lacked the the intelligence and the nuance that I would have wanted to see in a character. So that's what I try to do with Afrocentric. Hey everyone, I'm Renee Anjay Brown and I'm here to help my best friend Naima out. She always has some crazy ideas about how to change the world and I just try to support her the best way I know how. MyDiaspora.com sounds kind of funny to me, although my mom is from Indonesia and my dad's from the U.S. So I guess I fall into some category for diaspora. Not sure. Although I really want to go to Australia. For sure. Enjoy the rest of the block party, y'all. What's up, everyone? I'm Elizondo. Better known to those that talk like white folks as L. That means you too, black folks, who can't hold a Spanish accent. You know who you are. We take Spanish too. I'm here supporting my friend Naima and her project to help keep down the rent so my mom and I can live without the fear of eviction every damn month. Why? Because this is Aslam. Still in our land and shit. Thanks for holding it down, Naima. Black and brown unity. But first, uh, let us 
get our land back and shit. Yeah. Hey, this is my. What's up? I guess I'm supposed to say welcome to the block party for my sister. This is all my sister's ideas. I don't care about white people moving into the neighborhood. Our mom is white. Besides, it looks and smells better here now. No, seriously. I don't know why I'm on this mixtape. I'm better off doing what I do best, playing drums. Peace. I really love the concept of creating an anti-gentrification social media network, <laughs> which is which is a, um, a very rich part of this story. How, how did you come up with the idea for the website that is referred to as MyDiaspora.com? Yeah, that's a great question. In volume one, we're, we're sort of just introduced to the characters, and then volume two and three is a saga about gentrification and... You know, when I started, I didn't know exactly where I was going. But then what what kind of kept coming up for me is thinking about, you know, younger revolutionary kind of social justice activists and how they use their kind of millennial craft to solve some of the problems. And that was one of the ways that I I thought, you know, the main character would, you know, how do you solve this problem of gentrification? You know, there's so many ways to do it. Right. So part of it is a little bit of, you know, a satire, but another part of it is like, well, you know, with the way things are going, that's kind of something that you could develop. So it almost becomes mm-hmm. a little bit sci-fi, but also has this real grounded element to it. Will that particular story arc be centered around like the launch of the social network or will we expect to see something else in Naima's adventures? Yeah, so that was volume two and three was really the focus on this idea of my diaspora. <laughs> and um, in volume four, which we just came out with, it's it's a totally different saga. Um, wow. And in volume four, uh, we see Naima Pepper, you know, one of the main characters, looking for a senior internship at Ronald Reagan University. And through the help of her fairy godmother, who is mm-hmm. Fannie Lou Hamer, kind of ancestor nice. back. <laughs> she gets a job as a racial translator. So <laughs> she translates black people to white people and sometimes white people to black people because she's mixed. But there's like some inherent problems with that with that work. So, you know, that's what volume 4 is all about. Nice. I love that. I I was curious to know as well. I I noticed that each of the pages of this comic are in black and white. Is that done on purpose or are the, is the lack of color budget reasons? Cause I know that coloring in comics and print can be super expensive. So is, is there a particular reason for that? Yeah, it is. It's just more cost effective to be real. I would love to do at least one comic in color, but right now, you know, being self-published and trying to get the comics out in a timely way, black and white really made the most sense for Afrocentric. Awesome. Where can our listeners go to purchase Afrocentric, and where can we learn more about any current or future projects that you're working on? Yeah, so Afrocentric is available on Afrocentric.com. That's just an H in front of Afrocentric.com. 
you can download it as a book or, you know, you can get the physical copy. And there's also a list of bookstores that carry the book on the website as well. And, you know, I'm on Twitter, the Instagrams, the Facebooks, all the all the things that you're supposed to be on at Half Pro Central. <laughs> awesome. Since this is your first comic and you're just getting, you know, started and developing all these great characters and I'm wondering what have you learned through this process and what are you hoping to do more of in the future? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. So the long-term goal with Afrocentric is to eventually turn it into something animated. Nice. And we've started to play with some of the drawings that we've already done, turning them into GIFs and MP4s. But what I'd like to do is to continue that. And, And part of you know about like making comics you know that it for us it took a year it takes about a year to produce one comic so we're on volume four wow and i you know as i was going through this process i was thinking to myself like whoa that's a lot of time to invest and then have you know 10 minutes of somebody's time Mm. so the other thing that we've done with volume three and four is we've added a mixtape what so (laughs) <laughs> so I, I call it an extension of the story. And in volume three, it houses extra character dialogue. So it's almost like, you know, I don't know if you guys ever read like Choose Your Own Adventure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like it's kind of stems from that idea that, you know, the the book ends, but there's also like this other dialogue that continues to take place. So with volume three, we had extra character dialogue throughout this mixtape that also included music. And the same thing with volume four. There's there's extra character dialogue as well as a bunch of music. That's so awesome. That's really cool. I love being able to go to other spaces to continue to enjoy the worlds that have been created. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's something that you kind of have to do, especially as you know, somebody who's independent is really like, how do I continue this work in the lull of not having a book come out every month, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Fantastic. Afrocentric. Awesome. Awesome. I, I really hope that more folks that are listening in will take advantage of Afrocentric. And I believe you have the previews of the volumes up on the website where people can kind of get a sneak peek of what to expect. And uh, look forward to hearing more from you, Jules. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having me. I so appreciate it. And big ups to you guys again for, for doing the work that you do. I really appreciate it. Show my boobs and hide my grill like it's some peekaboo. Read the news, I ain't no for bluffing if it's me. You, I'ma leave you permanently blushing like a Pikachu. No pink or blue, I play my part. I'm dancing hard in my leotard. Mother brain, she tried to win. I shredded her like a league guitar. Roll credits, the show ended. It's too bad, it ain't no edits for the other team. It take two minutes. I'm Piccolo and other you clueless if you dash at Simmons. I'ma call you Stacy. Turning up my music, clapping what my mother gave me. I don't act like a lady. I still jump up in the melee in the 
that space age bathing suit now holler justin bailey i love that feeling when i beat the game i love that feeling when i save the day i love that feeling when i get my way i'll be over the moon but i'll be hollering soon yeah i love that feeling when i beat the game i love that feeling when i save the day i love Call it quits and lock that out. Ladies, weapons down. Now that's some pull. I ain't no matador. Instead, I'm flying solo on a mission to the very end. Build the boss a blow like Tanya did to Nancy Kerrigan. Hot. So before you ask, I don't need a man. My work is kicking. They call me me a hand. While you chickens laying eggs, I'll just be eating them. I never land. I'm speeding past. They call me Peter Pan. Plus, it's never black and white. My Life is not a zebra. Yeah, tonight I wanna fight as if I'm Sunny Chiba. But she might not have really died. It's temporary freedom. If she come right back to life, I'll act like it's a speed run. Beat her up pronto. If she really wants some, got a bigger brain, but she will never be head honcho. Got me seeing red like looking at infected tonsils. I promise you'll be there when we get to a better console. I love that feeling when I be. The game. I love that feeling when I save the day. I love that feeling when I get my way.